Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1926 film, The General, directed by Buster Keaton and Clyde Bruckman. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Stephen, have you watched anything since last time we recorded? Uh, yeah, I watched a, a bunch of movies, actually. Um, first of all, I watched a bunch of those airport movies from the 70s, um, just because I'd never seen any of them in its entirety I don't think ever. So I watched Airport, Airport 77 and Airport 79. Mm. And they're all like those disaster flicks with like, you know, wall to wall, like stars of the day. So they're very entertaining, I, I must say. Um, and then another movie I saw was The Killer's Kiss, um, which was made in 1955. It's one of Stanley Kubrick's first movies. It was on um, TCM and it was really good. They said it's like one of the highest like budgeted student films that ever got released like nationally. And it was it was really well done, even though it felt like a student film. So, is that the one with the like ballet dancer? Or something? Yeah, in the middle, like yeah. that he was married to, I think, and it, there was a monologue in it. Um, it was I found that pretty interesting, although it didn't really fit. Mm -hmm. But it still was like it did feel like a student film in that respect, like the angles that he used and the way that he kind of portrayed a lot of stuff. It just it felt like it, but it was really well done. I thought mm. for a student film, and he was twenty six, so I thought that was. That was amazing. Right. And Alicia, how about you? Um, I really didn't have the chance to watch any movies this week. <laughs> so, so very sorry. But um, I did watch, um, I do watch, there's this British comedy show that I'll just like recommend. I know, shocking. <laughs> uh, called Taskmaster. And um, you can find it on YouTube. They have their own YouTube channel and like all their seasons are loaded there. <clears throat> and it's just every season they get five comedians to do all these crazy, like ridiculous, pointless tasks. And then they rank, they score them. They rank them on the, how they did each week. And it, there's, they're in the middle of a season right now, season 11, that's like, I'm loving. So I would just recommend that. But I didn't watch any movies. Very sorry to go off topic. How dare you? I have to check that out though. Sounds good. <laughs> and Laura, how about you? Well, sometimes I like to watch television, like straight up TV, because with all of the streaming services, I like it when I'm out of control. So I just put on a channel, see what's on and let the commercials and everything just take over. And I caught the tail end of Jumanji, which the 1995 film. And then right after that was the remake of the 2017 Jumanji with The Rock. And it was fucking great like i was so happy um it was just really fun kevin hart was in it and that awesome girl from doctor who mm -hmm. i don't know her name karen gillen yeah she's yes. in marvel um, stuff too for such for obviously it had all those problems where films are so cgi and just not real and obviously it's a video game but as we all know it was so well written and so funny it made me really happy and an otherwise tough week mm, that's good so. and mia um i also didn't watch any movies this week other than watching like marvel stuff over your shoulder and being like what's going on who is this person what why because i haven't watched any other than black panther i haven't watched any marvel movies before um but 
I have been rewatching some Sex in the City, which is like my total go-to like comfort thing always. Um, so we started with season five, and I think now we're up to the first part of season six, which is actually like I feel like my sort of black hole. I haven't seen those episodes as much because I hate Burger, so I just kind of tend to gloss over that time. So, but it's good. I watched the Post-it episode, Stephen. Of you know, of course. So classic. I'm sorry, I can't. Don't hate, hate me. Yeah. So that was good. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so as she said, I've been watching some Marvel movies, I guess mainly <laughs> because uh, I've been watching The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus. So that kind of made me be like, wait, I don't remember why this is this or something. And But I, I, I did a thing that I do sometimes with, with long series of movies or even TV shows. I kind of watched it backwards. So I watched Endgame, then I watched Avengers, then I jumped back to Civil War I don't know. So whatever. Who cares? Uh, I also just needed some like mindless entertainment the last week or two. It sounds like we all did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's I, been a tough week. I did uh, <laughs> manage to watch a couple of of like highbrow movies, I guess. Uh, mm. I saw First Cow, which I feel almost embarrassed to say just wasn't my jam because it's like such a critical darling. And I'm just like, what did I miss here? And then I also saw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh, on Netflix, which I'd been meaning to watch. Actually, we I was starting to watch that. I don't remember if you were actually watching it when the power went out here in Texas back in February. Yeah. Uh, I was like 10 minutes into this movie. and Wait, uh, was that the one we put on at one in the morning? Yeah, we yeah. were like, let's just put something on because we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And then like 15 minutes later, just whoosh, yeah. power down. Yeah. So... For those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made. It comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out in 2022, so we're basically using that as our prompt to watch some classic movies ahead of it. We invite listeners to take part in the discussions by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group by emailing or by leaving a voice message on our anchor.fm show page. And again, this time we are talking about the general. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, uh, what did each of us know about the movie going into this viewing? Who's seen it before? What were you expecting, if anything? And Stephen, since you picked this one, why don't you start us off and also tell us why you picked it? Um, so going into this movie, I, I didn't know anything about it, really. Um, I've never actually seen a Buster Keaton movie in its entirety before. I've seen clips, and over the years, of course, they do retrospectives about movies that I've seen. Um, so I thought that we could start with that. And we haven't seen a comedy yet, or at least that's how it was billed as a comedy. Um, so I thought that it would be kind of a nice, <laughs> a nice palate cleanser for all the movies that we've seen that have been on the dark side, I think. Um, and then also a lot of 80s shows reference Buster Keaton is going to film festivals. And I always like, what's the deal with Buster Keaton? Why do people always want to go to his film festivals? So <laughs> I figured I would check out the hype and choose this movie. So that is an 80s trope I don't remember, but I'll take your word for it. Uh, is it Melrose Place that does it? No, like I've seen it like on Family Ties and like some of the other 80s. Like they're like, there's a Buster Keaton movie that's playing at the Rialto or, mm. you know, they, they referenced it. And I was like, why Buster Keaton? It always stuck with me when I was a kid. So anyway, awesome. but I, yeah, so that's what I knew. I didn't know anything that's, about it. That's probably the coolest reason. Right. To like watch a movie. And uh, Alicia, how about you? Um, so I have never seen this movie. I knew 
that it was about a train and I knew that it was Buster Keaton. And obviously I knew who Buster Keaton is. I know he does the thing where the house falls on him and lands perfectly with him standing up in the window. And that that was like very technically impressive when it was done at the time. Um, So, and, uh, but yeah, other than that, I didn't know much else. Okay. And Mia. Um, so I had seen this movie about a year ago. We, Jeremiah and I watched it like early on in this, uh, pandemic that we're in. I think it was actually before the pandemic. Okay. Whatever. It's a blur. Um, (laughs) we watched it in 2020 and, um, you know, so I, I'd seen it before, not that long ago, but I have a horrible memory for movie plots. So, you know, I didn't remember the fine points of it. Um, I was, also, I think my thing that I knew about Buster Keaton before watching this movie is also the house falling thing, because I just think that's so funny. And it was crazy. I was reading up on like when he did that for the first time. Uh, apparently, the house that was going to fall on him weighed two tons, and he only had a couple in- inches of clearance on mm-hmm. either side. So it was like, oh. it's like, oh, my God, that's terrifying. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Who would willingly subject themselves to that? Um, but I'm sure we'll get into more later, all the crazy stuff that he did and injuries or near deaths and stuff like that and laura i didn't know anything about this particular film buster keaton i've seen clips um i i think i'm mostly just he's i've always thought of him as the not chaplain guy that has a cool face fair enough and and he's sort of my type yeah because he looks kind of (laughs) creepy sad and creepy <laughs> yeah so there, there so was him. there was a point watching it where i was like i could see this guy walking around brooklyn or queens oh definitely like, and just year. being so freaky and yeah. weird and mm-hmm. on some sort of amphetamines and... <laughs> right um so yes I, I would go out with him yeah reading proust on the subway or something yeah, yeah. Right, right. Totally. swipe right um and he'd be emotionally unavailable <laughs> yeah very bendy. <laughs> I think this was my third time seeing this movie because, like she said, we watched it last year, and I think I saw it in in college once. Um, but yeah, I also like I somehow don't remember the finer points of it either, even though we watched it a year ago. And because so there's been a, a lot of stuff in the last yeah, year to but, uh, fill up brain space. <laughs> so it's good we watched it just last <laughs> night because apparently it's just going to leave my brain immediately. Um, even though I, I, it's a very entertaining movie, but um, yeah, <clears throat> I beg to differ. Oh, oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll get into that. First we'll into hot that. take of the week. I don't think that was the first one. I think Steven stuck one in there a little bit earlier. But um, <laughs> all right. So as I mentioned in previous episodes, when I was first seriously getting into movies, I got this book called The Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies, and it's the way I first found out about a lot of movies. So I'd like to read the entry for the general, and to be very clear. Uh, the more subjective parts of this aren't for me, and maybe we'll want to discuss those points as we get into our group discussion in a little bit. In fact, I definitely want to, but um, here is the entry. The general was my pet, remarked Buster Keaton. It was a page out of history. A jewel of silent cinema, the film was loosely inspired by an actual event during the American Civil War when a bunch of northern soldiers hijacked a locomotive, the general in order to sabotage a Confederate supply line sustaining Southern troops. In the hands of Keaton, the picture's writer, director, editor, and star, this bitter struggle is condensed into one dazzlingly sustained chase sequence with old stone-faced nominally cast 
as hero Johnny Gray, the dogged Southern engineer in pursuit. You can't make villains out of the Confederate Army, Keaton insisted. They lost the war anyway, so a motion picture audience resents it. And the same goes if I was in Michigan, Maine, Massachusetts. In the general, little Johnny Gray isn't truly battling for either side anyway. He's just trying to get his engine back. While set in the wooded hills of Georgia, the picture was actually filmed in the Pacific Northwest state of Oregon, where the scenery was better and the country was honeycombed with the narrow-gauge lumber railroads that fitted Keaton's period engines. Luminous and consistently thrilling, the general has arguably worn better than all other silent comedies. Rather than using the camera as a simple gag recording device, Keaton was determined to explore its full potential, filming on location, constructing elaborate stunts, and shooting long tracking shots from a customized vehicle that ran alongside the speeding train. Perhaps the movie marked the moment when comic cinema slipped the chains of its stage-bound vaudeville origins, turning airy, fluid, and poetic. Railroads are a great prop, concluded Keaton. You can do some awful wild things with railroads. All right, so the movie was released at the very end of the silent film era and was a commercial disappointment, thanks in no small part to its large-for-the-time budget of $750,000. Critical reception was also less than stellar, with reviews in several major papers saying that it wasn't up to the quality of Keaton's previous work or that it just wasn't all that funny. The critical and financial failure helped to effectively end Keaton's independence. And while the film opened in some theaters around Christmas in 1926, it mostly opened and played in 1927. So the top grossing film of that year was The Jazz Singer, which of course introduced synced sound to cinema, thus beginning the end of the silent era. Despite all that, over the years, the general has earned a reputation as a classic silent film and a classic comedy. It ranked number 18 on both the AFI's main list of great films that they redid in 2007 and its list of great comedies that they'd done earlier in 2000. And for our purposes, the film has made Sight & Sound Magazine's critics poll of the greatest films ever made twice. It came in at number 8 in 1972, and then at number 10 in 1982. So, Stephen, since this, again, was your pick, why don't you start us off with your thoughts on the film, your take on it? Did it live up to your expectations going in? Um... As far as my expectations go, I didn't really have much for this movie, knowing that it was a silent movie. I didn't know what to expect. Um, so it did live up to my expectations as, as far as it being like for pure entertainment. And I had to keep coming back to that just because it was a movie where the Confederacy was supposed to be the good guys and he was a Confederate soldier. So I had to just think about like, okay, as far as the achievement of the movie goes, it was just incredibly well made. And the, the fact that he was doing his own stunts and he was planning out all that stuff really kind of propelled the movie to being enjoyable to that respect. Um, just knowing that the audiences are probably just going in there for a good time, then I felt like it kind of had done its job in that. And people probably hadn't seen that kind of spectacle before. So in that respect, I thought it was actually lived up to my expectations. And the story itself is just sort of like trying to go back to it and trying to really parse it as being, you know, a war movie necessarily didn't seem to mesh with me very much. So mm -hmm. that was where I kind of left it. But as far as a movie goes that I would watch that I'm just looking at the technical achievements of it, I really did like it. Okay. Mia, how about you? Yeah, I think overall I would <clears throat> I would agree with Steven's assessment. I think, you know, you watch it, it's obviously like very 
incredible that he did all of these stunts could have died like 18 different ways in pretty much every scene of this film um you know I read some of the critical reviews at the time were like oh it was a little long or it kind of dragged it's repetitive and like I can see that um I think if I was talking to someone and they said I've never seen a silent film before I think silent films are dumb or something like that like I would be like well you should watch this movie because I think you don't miss the sound in it which is pretty incredible since obviously all of our lifetimes it's very predominantly sound movies um but yeah the issues of the confederacy and being portrayed as the good guys in the scenario and all of that certainly problematic from where we sit today and i mean honestly even then like this movie came out what in 1926 so decades after the civil war had ended um so problematic to a certain extent then too i don't really understand in the quote why he's saying if it was maine michigan whatever it wouldn't have mattered (laughs) i don't maybe i think it's just me like i don't understand so (laughs) i think it's just there's rednecks all over Ah. (laughs) well that's true i mean people who are like oh the south was some great ideal of of a time or something true i mean look Um, where we are today i I also think he was talking about how the underdog like the south lost so that too you can't villainize them even though you can fucking villainize them but for some reason he thought this was fact across all of states that started with an m (laughs) (laughs) just those ones right um and laura so i got 45 minutes into this film and i was like wow this is so odd i just it was it was like nails on a chalkboard every scene every stunt all of the different um fluctuations of the music uh i I was trying to appreciate this in a technical sense i was thinking for what it means. And I was just like, I, I just hated it. And so in order to watch the film, because I hated it and because I know we have this podcast, I watched it twice more with different music along with it. I, so, you know, I would, once I watched it with just Morrissey music, especially because Morrissey's <laughs> been in the news because of the Simpsons right. takedown. And then I watched it with Radiohead music and, and I just hated it every time. So <laughs> I just, yeah, I, it, it, it was so strange of an idea and a concept that we're supposed to go with. And I just couldn't hang out with this long haired, freaky looking dude and the girl relationship. None of it made any sense to me. It just, I mean, I get what it, they, he was trying to do. It just was, I didn't like it at all. Did you pick Morrissey and Radiohead because it's sad boy music? For his sad boy face? Marcy was top of mind, honestly. And I thought maybe Bone and Drag would be really fun or maybe we'll go to the Smiths. Like, mm. so I was just, I was doing anything to try and right. get through the film. And then because I was mad at myself for being so dismissive, I forced myself to do it again with different music along. So did you watch it with the score from the like streaming service ever or, or did you yeah, watch for it the first times? 45 minutes oh and, and then found, you switched over i found it infuriating okay Just, got it oh got it yeah i Interesting. tried yeah <laughs> i i think i pretty much agree with steven and mia that uh it's there's so much about it that is like impressive this the stunts to me are so impressive um like 
it reminds me of how so many cartoons that I grew up on were just like ripping off silent films, you know, like the, with the sight gags and stuff. And when you watch actual live people do this stuff, it's just kind of mind bending to me that somebody decided to do some of the stunts that that uh, they do, not just in this movie, but a lot of the silent films, especially from Keaton and Chaplin or like Harold Lloyd or people like that who are just like doing death defying stunts all the time. Um, but yeah, I don't remember if it was on my mind so much when I saw it like 20 years ago, but definitely when we watched it last year and then when we watched it last night, the Confederacy stuff is just like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> it's just yeah. too much. And I'll say this, not in its defense exactly, but I do think these things exist on a spectrum and it's not gone with the wind. It's not birth of a nation. It's like until the end, at least, it's largely neutral and it's ju it is just sort of circumstantial that he's a character in the South and therefore that's the side he's on. But it's still like a little too apologetic about it or too glorifying of it for, for my taste. And it is... It is distasteful to me. And I, I agree with you that, I mean, come on, they could have known better in 1926, but I, I think it was already like a well-established trope, especially because of Birth of a Nation, like 10 years before that the South was sort of considered in this new glorified light. And that I bet that's at play with like Buster Keaton is like, oh, people like the South in movies. So I'm going to, and I mean, it also comes straight from the story that he based it on, of course, but like it probably didn't hurt that it was the story of a Southern hero in some way, in, in my opinion, but um, Alicia. Um, yeah, no, my reaction to it was pretty much the same. I found it like technically very impressive, all the stunts, all the practical effects. Um, and actually from a comedic point of view, there were for me a few like actual laugh out loud moments. <laughs> um, not a lot, but a, a few. And um but yeah, the story itself was like not that compelling to me. And um, and definitely I wasn't like in the headspace to be like, yeah, let me root for the Confederate army. Mm -hmm. <laughs> here. But um, but yeah, I, I I didn't hate it. I just I didn't like love it, but I, you know, it was it was watchable. I, I have to say I did laugh my ass off. I think it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> but this is also like totally my kind of humor, like people falling and like that kind of stuff. So I, I yeah. will say that. I'll admit. Yeah. I mean, I think I laugh at cleverness in the movie more than I laugh at it out and out humor. Like, because I don't think there are a lot of jokes in, in the form of like setup punchline. You know, it's not oh, that yeah. sort of humor. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's mm -hmm. sight gags and just impressive feats. Yeah, it's very situational. Yeah. You know, that's where the laughs come from more than the actually being funny. Right. That's what I felt. Oh, and his facial expressions I found really funny. Some, like some of the expressions he makes mm -hmm. are a reaction shots that he has, are reaction shots that we still see like all the time in modern day comedy. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really, it's still, I was like, it's still funny. <laughs> it's yeah. still funny to see someone react in that way to that. Right. So, so Stephen, you, you wanted to ask a question of the group. My big question was, and we kind of alluded to this a little bit, and Jeremiah, you also had, had mentioned a little bit about this. Um, you know, it's it's based on a, a true story. And then it, as I was watching it, I was wondering, well, it's 1926, and the Confederacy is supposed to be like the good guys in this. 
Um, and I know it's kind of like the underdog story of like, he's this schlubby guy and, you know, he, he doesn't get any respect from anybody. He ends up being the big hero. But I was still thinking like, well, why did they make the Confederacy into the, the heroes of this piece? And then also, as the movie was going on, I just noticed all of this kind of, it felt almost like propaganda of like the Confederacy, you know, with the, the gray coats and, you know, him racing and, um, you know, you see the flag at the end with the Confederate, you know, he's kind of getting up on that that uh, rock and he's waving that flag around. And also the fact that, you know, the Confederacy seems to get one over on the North and it's relatively, even though it's sort of by happenstance, you know, they prevail and they prevail in the battle at the end too. And with the way that it ends, you would think that, you know, the, the North had lost the war. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my question to everybody is, do you kind of consider this more like a war propaganda movie? Or is it just sort of for entertainment and he just wanted to go with the underdog and that's who the underdogs were during the Civil War? I kind of thought it's it's definitely, it propagandizes not to me necessarily the Confederacy, like the war cause, but it sort of, it propagandized like the lost cause, that idea that like, not that he thought that slavery was cool or anything, but just that that he thought that they fought for a noble cause and it was states' rights and you know, that thing of trying to whitewash what actually happened and try to forget the slavery question. Yeah. That was if what you, I thought. If you notice there, I think there are two black people in that movie. And you notice when they're walking with like this trunk and those are the only two African-Americans you see in the movie. I yeah. must've missed them. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I don't remember that. Cause I don't remember them. That's how. Well, when we've been watching these movies, I've actually been looking. For right. Them. Well, I, yeah, it makes Fair sense. I'm, I'm actually mad at myself for missing it. Well, I guess I would say to me, it was like very striking in what they left out, which like on the one hand, I'm like, okay, was he just trying to make this like, you know, slapsticky situational comedy with trains? It's certainly train propaganda. I was like, I want to go <laughs> on a train right now. It's train like, porn. Yeah, it's definitely train porn, yeah. probably all of those things. Like I was like, man, they don't make trains like that anymore. Like that would be so cool to go on. Yeah. yeah, although I did read later that on average they only went 15 miles an hour and <laughs> like during that era and I was like oh my god kill me um but like yeah I mean they don't even they're like they fired on Fort Sumter and then they go and enlist but there's no discussion of slavery I don't think they even say anything about states rights it's almost like the war is just like this backdrop thing that's it's happening like a plot device. right mm -hmm. yeah exactly until you get to the very end and i think if there hadn't been this like oh wait i gotta get back and warn the army which i guess we're supposed to be thinking he's motivated by you know his girlfriend or fiance said she wasn't going to speak to him again until he's in uniform so he wants to do this but i i feel like if they had just changed the ending it would be even more so like okay this is just like a thing to let this story happen you know what I mean but then it turns into this whole like battle and you know he blunders his way through that whole thing and stuff um but like even the the deaths are so sanitized like people just kind of fall exactly. over you know it's mm -hmm. just odd it's interesting all of the points you made Mia and how it's not propaganda could be the same as why it actually is propaganda how that I don't know if this was his intention, mm -hmm. but you were talking, it, they make the South this, you know, lovable human side. I mean, I, with war, there's always, it's about people fighting. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't even question the issue of slavery as if that was part of 
unfortunately is what it was about, but you know, the gentleman doing their noble duty and this film that we have is oddly, I think very much a, an example of propaganda um, in a very uncomfortable, odd way. Um, and, he, and Buster Keaton is sort of this misfit, you know, up against the big bad, everybody. And I think that he's a metaphor for what the South went through. And I don't know if that was what his intention was, but I think that's what this film has evolved into. Yeah, I, I think whether it is propaganda or not, and you might be right, I think it's buying into propaganda at the very least. Mm -hmm. uh, and I again, I'm going to bring up Birth of a Nation because I think Birth of a Nation really changed a lot of mindsets about the Civil War or popularized or helped to popularize that viewpoint of the South being this lost society of, of antebellum nobility. And we do see that in those early scenes with the with his love interests family, the the father and the brother, just you know dutifully uh, setting off to enlist, and he's sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess so. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, that's that's my I guess that's how I imagine him sounding if he actually talked. But um, yeah, so I, I think it does engage with propaganda and enforce propaganda, whether it is itself propaganda. And, and and I'm not sure that's worse or better, honestly. In, right. In the end. Yeah. I mean, look at the people that were in line to enlist. They were all like coded, like you know, richer looking people. Right. And mm -hmm. you know that the people who enlisted in the in the Civil War and the Confederacy were a lot of them were poor people that were you know kind of forced into it. And it was also you know slaves were forced into it too. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. know there was definitely a lot more to that than than what we saw. Yeah, and, and I want to kind of revisit a couple of the lines that I'd highlighted for us, at least, uh, internally in, in the passage from that book. Um, so the Keaton quote is, you can't make villains out of the Confederate army. And as we've kind of discussed, it, it might be that he's saying that they're underdogs because they lost. So you can't, you know, but I, I just don't buy it. I, I, I think it's bullshit. I mean, it, it makes sense that he would have that opinion at the time because I do think that was in vogue. And it has been in vogue until way too recently, honestly, to view it that way. And plenty of people still view it that way. But that's kind of the problem with like mass popular media reinforcing this bullshit. Um, and then the line from the author, not from Keaton, of, of that passage of in the general, little Johnny Gray isn't truly battling for either side anyway. He's just trying to get his engine back. That's complete and utter horseshit because like... Even if you buy that as a premise, that statement, like by the end of the movie, he is wholly fighting on the side of the Confederates, like firing cannons at them. I, I think the only death we see at his hands is is accidental, but it's still, it. yeah, yeah, the saber, yeah, and and it's it's funny and dark in a way, but it's still like weird um and i it's mean odd yeah that's the that's my word for this film it's yeah. just fucking odd like, yeah but uh, so i i just don't buy into this i i think it's just like these are signs of the times when the movie was made and when that passage was written of of the apologism that was in play for the south that like is hopefully kind of starting to melt away 
in polite society, so to speak, these days, the last year or two or three or four or whatever. When did this book come out? I'm just curious. I got this book in the like mid 90s. And I, I, I think it was like a new edition of the book. I don't know if it had been around and is one of those things that gets updated from time to time. But uh, there's a chapter on 90s movies in it. So it's it I, I, I consider it a, a book of the 90s. And it makes sense that someone was saying this horseshit then, honestly. What if we say that Buster Keaton was a racist? Do we know that? Have we gone through his other movies? What what drove him to put everything he had and Vincent Gallo himself in like this Brown Bunnies type of film where he <laughs> went over budget, did this huge thing, mm-hmm. all in the name of the Confederacy? What propelled him to do that? I'm just, I, it's just, a, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not saying he was, I'm saying it's, I don't think it's beyond the realm of something to consider. Mm-hmm. This ruined I, his career. Know, <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if it's necessarily that simple to say that he was or he wasn't. I think that a lot of times people do things because they don't think about it as being a problem. They'll just go ahead and do like, oh, for him, it's just a story about the North and the South. I could have picked either one, but I picked the South because they're the underdogs, not realizing that there is a lot of more baggage that comes along with having it, you know, portrayed in that specific way. So I don't know if it's necessarily that deep that he made a conscious decision because he was a racist and he wanted to propel the South. At least that's I, I don't know anything about him, but that would be maybe maybe that would be the reason why he did that. Yeah, and, and since we're surmising at this point, you know, I, I do think the <laughs> the fact that he does steer clear of slavery as an issue or states' rights, like none of that comes into it. It's just like there's the good guys and the bad guys. And if you if you just stripped away the terms union and confederacy, it would just be like a war movie, um, you know, but it's very much set in the Civil War. And I do think there is a racism to the erasure at play there. Uh, but I I think that if you talk to him about it in that day, he'd be like, I was avoiding racism by not bringing it up, which, you know, helped propagate it for another hundred years, but whatever. Yeah, the erasure of it was, um, to me, suspect. I think society was just kind of racist at that time. I don't think it, mm-hmm. and like, I agree, I don't, I don't think he put any thought into the slavery question at all, really. Or if he did, it was just to erase. Mm-hmm. It was just to not address it, and and which is like we said, it's problematic. In that way, I think it's it can be considered racist just because society overall was racist. And no, I'm sure he didn't consult with any people of color to find out how they would feel about this or anything mm-hmm. like that. I think it's like an, it comes from an institutional racism or societal racism, not necessarily that Buster Keaton was personally like a racist, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course it makes sense. I mean, posing the question is is pretty um, combative in and of itself, but I just feel like it should be asked with a film like this, whether or not I have a good answer. Um, I appreciate all of this response. Well, just to be clear, I think you're right to ask it. I mean, it sounds like it was on all of our minds as we watched it, and I don't know how it couldn't be. So I, I don't, 
I think it's good that you're asking it. So Stephen, you had another question for us. Do you want to go ahead and ask that? For me, watching this, and we also did talk about this earlier in the podcast about, um, for me watching this, I felt like the movie itself was more of a action type movie. And the comedy kind of came from the situations that he was in, but yet this movie is still considered a comedy. So would you still classify this as a comedy movie? Um, because I felt like it wasn't. I think Alicia is the comedy expert, so I'd be curious to oh, get no. your thoughts on it. <laughs> um, I do think it is a comedy. There's too much slapstick and too many sight gags. There's definitely an action element. I don't know if it's more one or more the other necessarily, because it is a lot of just like watching long sequences of him, like of two trains, <laughs> two armies sort of chasing each other back and forth. But within that, everything that he's doing 90 percent of what he's trying to put across is like funny sight gags where he's throwing the wood over the thing and it's landing on the other side or it's knocking other stuff off that he's trying to do or I can't even remember everything that you know the woman does something stupid or of course you know mm -hmm. which was supposed to be funny uh, or his reactions to the situations from my perspective I did think he was trying I did think he was trying to to do more comedy but within an action framework, I guess. The beauty, the, what I've always been attracted to by Buster Keaton and that that image of him in that poster is, is this inherent melancholy that always exists in his face. And I've seen in the clips that I've seen, and to me, that's always been the interesting and even the comedic element of it. Um, in this film, it just seemed completely out of place and bizarre. And with every communication interaction with all the other people it I, and his even from his hair and visually how he looked the idea that he was trying to make this comedy with this face of just sadness and and discontent underneath just made me quite uneasy but yeah i think it was just unsuccessful I, as a comedy i think I think it's a comedy personally, but I think that was kind of his thing too, was like he had this stone face look all the time as like a foil, I guess, to like the falling down and the slapstick and all this kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. I guess so when he grew up and I don't know if anyone else looked into this, but I love the history thing. I so I yeah. Looked into it too. <laughs> <laughs> so he grew up in a vaudeville family. His dad actually had a touring thing with Harry Houdini, which I thought was really cool. Um, and they would do this thing when he was a kid where they would just like throw him all around, like throw him into the audience, throw him at a wall, throw him down the stairs. And he learned from the age of like three to like fall really well but I guess he realized that when he thought it was great and so he would start laughing when they were like flinging him about and he noticed that people didn't think it was as funny when he was laughing so he would just have this like super stone face look all the time and that was the laugh and or that you know brought more laughter so that kind of became his thing and I think that usually up until this film worked mm -hmm. and I think it was, it didn't. And I think the audiences didn't, I think that everyone, that you guys are wrong and that everyone <laughs> that's, <laughs> all the critics, sorry, I'm just kidding. No, the critics didn't like it either. Yeah, so I know, so and um, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 that's one thing I was gonna bring up is that at the time they would have agreed with you, Laura, that. <laughs> that so many of the critics were like, this isn't funny. It's too long. It's too repetitive. 
et cetera, et cetera. It's it's sort of like this movie is is one that is popular in hindsight. It's been made popular by by film aficionados and comedy aficionados. But I do think there is an intent behind comedy. It was intended to be a comedy. You might be right that it's a failed comedy for for you and for whoever doesn't laugh at it. But um, yeah, I mean, that was his persona. He was like one of the big comedy stars of the day. You know, it's like Chaplin as the tramp and and Keaton with his, you know, never emoting face. And uh, like they were two of the bigger stars. And so... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I think it was meant to be a comedy, but I do think that it was also like his, his whole shtick was like death defying stunts in the name of comedy. So I do think it's also an action and adventure movie quite clearly. And I mean, I wonder if that's sort of like how he got so popular is that even if you didn't find any of it funny, it's still sort of like, whoa, I want to watch this guy do this crazy shit. I think it works on that level regardless of whether you laugh at it. I mean, I'm curious, Laura, what you think of that. Like, were you still sort of like watching the stunts and having any sort of entertainment value or awe at them or anything? I think his physicality is, is beautiful. And, you know, what he was able to do was very impressive, but it was so exhausting. There was, it was never a break. There was, you knew it was going to be some issue from one second to the other. There was, it was, oh, so this didn't work. And, and the physicality of how, of him compared to everyone else, usually to me is what sets him apart and create and adds the beauty to him and his, the mystique of what Buster Keaton is in this film. It just looked really um, anachronistic. It, it didn't make sense to me. Um, watching him mm. in this backdrop and so yeah the his he's very impressive he what he did what he was able to do timing wise even the, from the very beginning the first stunt of him sitting on the the train when the wheels turn when he gets um in a bad situation it it's just the timing is what's incredible of it and there's a musicality to it but i just it got so boring, so much of it. <laughs> it's enough already. Yeah, I think that when you say exhausting, I think that that's kind of dead on. It's, I think it's the same type of humor for such a long time that it gets to the point where you're like, this isn't just, just do something, do something different, <laughs> do something else. I think it's probably really hard in a silent film to do much else other than psych gags you know, you can't just like sit there and crack jokes or make puns or whatever. But yeah, I think it, that a lot of it is repetitive and it goes on too long. When I say it was a comedy, I do think it, like we said, it was intended as a comedy. I do, I do think it has a lot of failures as a comedy. So I think maybe it's too long of a film. <laughs> I don't think I needed the whole sequence of them going there and the whole sequence of them coming back on the trains. So that was like a lot for me even though there's the battle stuff is problematic too. But once the train, once you saw the train on the bridge collapse, like I thought that was impressive. And I was like, oh, I'm engaged again. Like something different is at least happening on my screen right now. There's a battle instead of just this back and forth. Something just clicked for me when you were saying that, Alicia, of pointing out that it, you didn't need to watch it, the train go all the way there and all the way back. This <laughs> movie is basically 
remade in 2015 is Mad Max Fury Road. And if you want to think about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, but, but I think that does actually get to something that I wanted to bring up. I mean, Keaton has been, I think, a big influence. He and other silent comedians like him who, who fused uh, stunt work with comedy, like Chaplin and whoever, um, they were like a big influence on certain action stars. And I would probably guess George Miller, uh, the director behind Mad Max, but like Jackie Chan is pretty well known, I think to be uh, a big fan of Keaton and Chaplin. And you, you watch a lot of his movies, like there's so much comedy in his action and it's, it's similarly just sort of awe striking to watch. Um, so I, I think that, that it, it, it kind of set a mold in a way because like his, his stunt work is like, I think even beyond Chaplin who did, did plenty of, of stunt work, but he, he always had like that pathos to his films and um, more just like a wider range of emotion. And it, I've, I haven't seen a ton of Keaton films, but I, I think this one is pretty emblematic of his deadpan shtick and that it's sort of like, I understand why it can be too long real fast for you if, if it's not the thing that you're enjoying, you know, because it, it, it doesn't like sort of modulate the same way that Chaplin does or, or other silent film stars maybe do. That's why I asked the initial question, because the, the comedy itself was not really there, but the action was there the whole time. And so it's the same thing as when you think of action movies today. There's a lot of them that are considered action movies, but there is a humor. There is humor in it. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say that that was the overarching theme to the movie. Is it being a comedy for me? And that's all I wanted to add. Yeah, for me, so much of it is there is, and I think I like the movie more than everyone else here. So, but there's like this tension throughout the whole thing where I'm like so anxious of like, is he gonna fall off this train? Is this gonna happen? Is this gonna happen? Or like is in some kind of scenario where I'm like, how is he gonna get out of this and stuff? Whereas I feel like I do not consider myself an action movie person. And I guess when I think of like most comedies today, there's not really that, at least not the ones that I tend to watch. So to me, it's sort of like this. I think it is if I was going to like rank it, it would be like a comedy before an action movie, but also like something else, like not like a thriller, but like just this other thing there where I'm constantly like, what's going to happen? Do you think it has something to do with just his physicality or the way that he was portrayed? Because he was sort of like the everyman. So when things were happening to him, they might have had more weight to it just because he was this like skinny guy that he really could fall off the train. He really could get crushed by it. Yeah. Um, as opposed to somebody else who might have had that physicality that you would expect them to prevail. So I don't know if that's part of it. Um. It's interesting because while I was watching it, I just thought, oh, he is going to fall off the train. He is going to get crushed and then come out. I, I guess I just always kind of went there with all of the stunts. I was just like, yeah, the worst case scenario is going to happen. And then we're going to take it from there. But I just wanted to mention what disturbed me the most about the film. And it's not one of your questions, Stephen. So I just wanted to bring it up was watching him with the lead actress. Them together just was it was such a disturbing scenario to me like there was just there was not to say that there was no chemistry because that's a given it was just almost it was ridiculous to see the image of them together and it, it just took every time I was watching it and 
even at the end, you know, with the salute, the, the famous salute scene with all the soldiers coming out and how it's supposed to be really, you know, satisfying that he just salutes, salutes while he kisses her from the other angle. I was just so put off by the kiss. I didn't know, I wonder if anyone else had a similar reaction or was it just me reliving a bad relationship? What was it specifically like triggering you there? I didn't think, I, just I didn't. Think it looked so weird together and they just. It so just, it was just like a look thing? Like he looks, or they, they look had, like. It looked to me like he almost could d- hated her, honestly. Like I just, that's what I saw. Okay. Just, did yeah. you guys not see that at all? No, because I, I think he's the only one pursuing. Would... So well, yeah, right? not trying not to gaslight you. You saw what you saw. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. no, I don't. I don't feel that way. But it was just. It was. That was really disturbing for me. I just thought she looked like a. They just didn't fit at all. It was really uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's sort of like a uh, she's almost like a MacGuffin, like, you know, she she's not really she's a plot device, which uh, bothered. Yeah, which sure. Bothers which I get that of itself. Yeah, because we don't have any backstory, really, like or any backstory you have is inferred just from their dynamic, which is very short. And uh, it just seems to be that, like, she wants somebody who is respectful of the society she lives in which is the south and is going to and be fights for it yeah and yeah but i i get what you're saying i don't think they have a lot of time together on screen where it's just like them being a supposed couple you know it's like you get thrown in real fast and then everything's off to the races um so to speak and so i really do think she's more a plot device than a character um, and sometimes Maybe a prop. She's sometimes more a prop than a character. Yeah, too. But, that bothered me too. Um, She's just like the train. The train is a prop as well. Right. <laughs> so they're they're both on equal he had, footing. Yeah, two unequal. loves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. True. I had a question. Well, just in general. So they wouldn't let him join the army, but they said he's an engineer. He's really important to us, but they never explained to him that. And then he also never explains to anybody else that I'm an engineer. They told me I couldn't join. Like that would have been a reason for them to say, okay. And then, but there would have been no movie if he had exactly right. happened. So I was just, I was just throwing that out. I just thought that was really odd. I, I, I noticed that I agreed with you and I just thought, well, this is what Seinfeld is every episode. <laughs> I think it's more of a three's company misunderstanding type Ooh. of situation. <laughs> there you go. I don't think he <laughs> knew because they just say, oh, you can't join. You know what I mean? I mean, yes, I think he could have been like, oh, wait, maybe it's because I'm an engineer or said, why is it because I'm an engineer? You know, but they just never and he never. And then clearly everyone else just like makes up their minds really fast. But I don't think I mean, clearly in this movie, like character development, is just like not a priority. You know, it's like, no, let's get to him like doing cartwheels on top of this train and stuff like that. Like that's <laughs> the focus of the movie. <laughs> so what was everyone's favorite scene moments or elements of the movie? And if you don't mind, Laura, I'd like to start with you and see if you have something you can point to that you actually liked. Well, I mean, I like looking at Buster Keaton. I just thought it just didn't make sense within this backdrop at all. I, I wanted to have a favorite scene. I still do. And I don't. Visually, every scene bothered me. Okay. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I sound like such a dick. <laughs> Your feelings are valid. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, guys. Anybody else? I, I really like the train actually falling into the water. I thought that was just so, it, it felt like the train fell into the water because I think we've been seeing so many movies that are, like you said about Jumanji, that were completely computer generated, that you felt the weight of that actually like crashing. And mm -hmm. it, it just, it was real because it, you know, it looked real because it was real. Um, so that to me was just like, he really worked on doing that and he did it so well that it just, it just made the movie for me. Uh, for me, I liked the sequence uh, well, where that that um, climaxed with his saber flying off and killing the other guy accidentally. <laughs> I thought that whole thing first. I like, could first when they're shooting the cannonballs. I'm not a war, I'm not a military person, so I'm probably going to say a bunch of incorrect terminology when I try to describe this. But when they're firing off the cannons, and I guess the guy is like down there and he's actually like sniping up at them, and the Confederate soldiers kept falling down without showing any blood or anything like that I was like what is going on <laughs> like did he accidentally do something wrong and knock them over it took me a second to like figure out what was going on and then I started laughing and then when his sword flew off and killed the guy I was I was laughing out loud like for some reason that particular sight gag just it just got me I mean that was like the big funniest moment for me mm-hmm it was well done, time timing-wise. Yeah. yeah. So my favorite scene is when he is, it's towards the beginning of the movie, and he's on the train, like on the cow catcher thing on the front, and has to pick up the one big thing of wood and throw it at the other to, like, knock the other one out of the way. And I just thought that was, like, so impressively done like the timing the execution all that and then when I was like reading up on it later and it was just basically like yeah he totally could have died there if he hadn't picked that one up fast enough like the train is like coming or no he's not he's not on the train the train is coming that's it sorry the train is coming and he picks one up and throws it and knocks the other one out and like the train was actually coming behind it and it's like if he'd gotten his foot caught if he hadn't picked up the one fast enough if it hadn't knocked the second one out and I guess just when I was watching it, I just assumed, oh, they must have done some kind of special effect here or something like that. Because how would you throw it and it would land so perfectly? Or like maybe they didn't even intend to do that and it just ended up being a fluke and they were like, oh, shit. But it's like, no, like that's what it was supposed to be. And I just think, you know, today that would definitely be either the train would be CGI'd in or you would have... I mean, he was essentially a professional stunt person, but like you would just never see like the star of a movie actually doing that. Mm -hmm. Very um, true. So I just thought that was really cool. Maybe Tom Cruise. Maybe Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> if one, if anyone that. was gonna do it, yeah. it would be Tom Cruise yeah. for sure. But, but he'd be like, we have to do this like fifty thousand feet in the air. Yeah. It has to be oh, in yeah. space. <laughs> um, yeah. So. I mean, I'm gonna just say that that the the scene near the beginning that Laura called out before where they're sitting on the bar between the wheels of the train and he starts moving. Um, that always just makes me smile uh, every time I've seen it, either in the movie or as a clip. But this time, like I was really watching the stuff that Mia was just talking about of like all of the like perfectly timed stunts and just, you know, prop gags and whatever. And one that I noticed that I was just like, how the fuck did he do that was when he is pulling like big pieces of wood and throwing it into the car that carries oh, yeah. the wood. And there's a part where like he grabs some and he throws it and he misses 
but it knocks the stuff so that it flies the exact right way. So it's like, this was on purpose. And I'm like, how did this thing that looks like a complete accident get done and work? And how many times did he have to do it to get it right? How many times did he actually get it right? And they like, did they have options on it? Were they like, yeah, let's do that one again. It's just crazy. The stuff that he does in this movie. Um, well, he had so much film at the end of it. I yeah. forget how much now, but it was like miles of film. So they probably mm-hmm. did just like do it over and over and over Maybe. again. Right. I was thinking about that when the scene, I think when the cannon exploded and then just the way that the train was moving, it just was perfect. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how many times did he do that? Did he just get lucky? Like it was really amazing. Yeah. That part was amazing as well. That was almost my favorite as well. Yeah. Um. So has the movie as far as you're concerned, stood the test of time? Like, Do you think it still resonates today? Does anybody want to start us off on that one? I think it resonates as like a technically impressive film, like all the stuff you just mentioned. Like I found all that stuff very impressive and compelling. The comedy, maybe not as as resonant as resonant today. There's moments, but overall, I wasn't just like sitting there and feeling entertained the whole time. I was, so I'll say. (laughs) I was going to say, I think it stands up to the test of time. I think as we talked about, there's like certainly problematic things about it, but I think, I don't think there's any movie that we're going to watch from the past. Well, very few at least that aren't going to have, especially if they're dealing with like actual events and stuff that aren't going to have something like that. And I think as a technical achievement, as something that I think, Alicia, you were saying, like so much of these stunts and comedy things are like still used today like it's definitely a groundbreaking film in my opinion and like I said earlier I think if someone was like I want to watch a silent movie I'd be like okay maybe watch this one and start there having not seen that many silent films so maybe there are other good ones out there there are I'm sure. Yeah. I meant maybe there are other good ones that I would recommend to someone if I had seen them. Let me finish my sentence. I think it does hold up um, just because the story itself is sort of secondary, but you do know that he's kind of the every man that you could put yourself in that situation, even though it's crazy. And he does seem to be able to prevail. So I feel like that's enough of the story to get by. And also the fact that it is a technically like amazingly made movie. And you can look at the the care that went into making a movie like that and the spectacle of it. So as far as like an entertainment entertaining movie goes, I think that it does stand up pretty well. I personally don't think it's my place to say a movie would stand the test of time or not. Um, I think even though I had a visceral negative reaction to a lot of this film, I can't deny the technical achievement or what he was trying to do. So there, that's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I think it stands the test of time just because it is a technical achievement. And I think it's easy to watch it and engage with it on that level of just watching this guy do this crazy stuff. And if you find it entertaining, it's very entertaining. Um, But I also think it's a good sort of like emblematic film of Buster Keaton and he's a very influential person in so many ways, just as an entertainer, both like the stuff talked about earlier about like Jackie Chan and uh, other people who've married stunt work and action adventure with comedy. I think that stuff largely goes back to Keaton and other like giants of the silent cinema age. But um, 
Also, even just like Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate is just like pulling a straight Buster Keaton face through most of that movie. And I'm pretty sure it's on purpose. That's an interesting point. So I, I think that that side of him, the the like sad sack looking dude, just stone face in a comedy is something that we see sometimes. I think there's like somebody who comes around and does that every once in a while and it goes back to him. Um, so I think he's influential and this is a good piece of his work. And there's that. that great scene in Arrested Development where the house falls on Buster. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that said, I will. I, I would be totally fine with this always having something in front of it. It's like, yeah, this Confederate shit's kind of fucked up. But um, <laughs> so uh, we have our usual bonus question here at the end. Well, my question was: um, Was there an Oscar movie that didn't win that you thought should have won, either this year or any year in the past? And do you want to start us off with that? Um, sure. Um, the movie that I picked was Pulp Fiction, um, just because I just felt like that movie launched so many other movies that were in that genre and of that year. That was a year that like a lot of other great movies had come out, but that seemed to just resonate with me. And also it was so different than anything else that had come out. And then it lost to Forrest Gump, which I thought of all the movies that came out that year, that was the, the least um, deserving of the Academy Award. So that was the movie I went with. Mm-hmm. Hmm. A lot of good movies came, a lot of good movies in the category that year. And then for Forrest Gump to be the one that <laughs> took it, it's like. Oh, he has a quiz show really? and it was, uh, yeah, the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, right. was, it was something. I thought this was a really um, hard question. And I took it seriously because there's so many years that there've been problematic choices or choices of films that just look, I didn't even want to, you know, look at whether it's Green Book or not to discount them as artistic, you know, films and having merit. It's just, they were, to me, doesn't, it didn't ring true as the choice or, or picking Scorsese's The Departed, for example. So it, it made me think of when the Oscars had cachet in my mind and in 1981, um, and this is interesting because this, this film has come up a few times on our podcast. Uh, it, there was a few films in the category and Ordinary People won. Um, and I think that Raging Bull should have won. I know that it's not a, um, a favorite of a few of our of our podcasters, but to me, I think it is a excellent film that should have taken that award that year. In fairness, I have, couldn't finish Raging Bull, so I don't actually know <laughs> if it's good or bad. Well, I'm not, not, like, not to just in, I think in general, I think people like from what I've gotten over over the podcast, it's not everyone's favorite, but we should actually watch it. I think I like next Raging. round. Going to. I enjoyed I enjoyed Raging Bull. I haven't seen Ordinary People, though, so I'll have to watch. It's both. a difficult film. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's easy to make the case for Raging Bull should have won over Ordinary People personally, like Ordinary People kind of grates on me. Like I recognize it as a quality film, but it's so just like yeah, I, 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 very earnest. Yeah, it's very earnest. Yes, very earnest. I li- I'm okay with earnest because yeah. I, I unfortunately have that problem. But um, it's to me, I I went to the '80s because that's when I really felt the Oscars still meant something. It still had all the. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand all the workings of Hollywood and how people, you know. Campaign to get their films right. won or 
etc. Well, so. I don't think it was done quite as much yet because this was like the pre-Harvey pre Weinstein era where that yeah. really took off. But um, Alicia, did did you want to name check something? Sure. Yeah, I was just surprised. I think I, not really surprised, but just disappointed um, the year that Green Book won because it was up against Black Klansmen, The Favorite, Roma, a few others that probably were never going to win Best Picture. And I didn't necessarily think that like Black Klansmen or um, The Favorite would win, although I I really liked both of those movies a lot. Um, I, Roma, I also really liked a lot, and I thought actually kind of stood a chance to win that year. <laughs> so I was kind of hoping that that one would. And I just felt that they went with like I don't even know if it's a safe choice of Green Book or what. I don't really understand what the rationale was for for voting for Green Book that year. It just seems like such a stale concept, such an overdone thing. Um, and then it won. And so I guess, yeah, that that was my thought. But I kind of am with you, Laura. Like, I, there's a lot of politicking for the Oscars that I just don't. That like as a as a civilian or whatever, like I'm not privy <laughs> to. So it's really hard for me. It's also lost a lot of meaning for me, the Oscar over the years, just because there's, you know, I just feel like it's 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 never the movie you think it should be almost. The only right. year like that I was pleasantly surprised recently was when Moonlight won. Um, but other than that, I'm always like, oh, this again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was gonna say Lady Bird for a recent one because I thought that movie was so good and Shape of Water won that year, which is okay in my opinion. I just think that movie was like so perfect and I just wish it could have won over The Shape of Water. I mean, I would argue that almost every year the Oscars get it wrong. It's rare (laughs) that they pick the best movie of the year to actually be best picture of the year. Uh, the one I'll name check is Boyhood, just because I think that's one of the best movies and best achievements in filmmaking, just like the scope of what he did with that movie. And then they were like, yeah, let's just give it to Birdman because they like faked one shot for a whole fucking movie. Give me a break. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I think they rarely get it right. They got it right with Moonlight, I think. And that was so rare that it felt like odd to see it happen. We had a couple of good answers in the Facebook group on this. Um, right. So... Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I totally agree with. That being yep. my absolute favorite movie of all time. So, yeah, <laughs> let's give it Best Picture that year it came out. Um, and uh, Gosford Park, uh, Charlie said that. And Sid said 2001. Um, but Gosford Park is one, like, I don't remember that well. I remember enjoying it when I saw it when it came out. I mean, I'll take probably anything over A Beautiful Mind, I'll say, though. Um, it's genius. Gosford Park. I can watch that movie a yeah. hundred times and still find something new in it. I, it's basically Down Abbey, but done, you know, by first. Robert Altman. Read <laughs> by Robert Altman. Yeah, the same kind of Altman vibe to it. Right. Really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember enjoying it, Beautiful Mind, but it just wasn't best picture material. Yeah, I mean that one seemed totally like a this guy's been making movies a while and making us a lot of money. Let's throw him some Oscars. So, our next episode is Laura's second pick. So, Laura, do you want to remind us what that will be? It's The Bicycle Thief by DeSica. Okay. So. Yeah, and that was released in 1948, and people could find it on HBO Max, Criterion Channel, or Canopy if they have a subscription. 
and it's also rentable in a lot of places, including Amazon, Google, and Apple TV. If you want to watch with us, um, <laughs> yeah, that one. Uh, so you're going with the bicycle thief. It has it has so many different versions of the name, which I always like. I like, did. I noticed that. With? So yeah. I don't. I'm okay with the pluralization of it um, versus the singular. Yeah. What do you go by? I go bicycle thieves. No article. Thieves. Either way, I don't know how to ride a bike, so <laughs> I'm just so gonna watch gonna the fucking one. movie. Okay. And I'm looking forward to it. And I really was looking forward to this one, even though I didn't mean to trash talk it. And I hope that the ghost of Buster Keaton still like likes me. <laughs> He's coming for you. You're gonna see because him on the street. I just, I was just disappointed. It just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. It was incongruous. So, what'd you say, Stephen? I said, well, she did say he was cute, so I think he'll probably leave. Very him. cute. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, he's Very. dead. He don't, he don't care. Um, all right, well, <laughs> that's it for this episode. What do you know? <laughs> because he's dead. What do you know about the afterlife? I could, I could pull a dead guy if I wanted. What if that's what you want to aim for, Laura, <laughs> yeah. that's up to you, I guess. Oh, wait, actually, hold on. I'm so cute. I had this quote that I wanted to read. <laughs> okay. That I think might make you change your mind, Laura. About so, the dead guy? Okay. Uh, about what his wife said. He was married three times, and the first two were, like, pretty disastrous. And then the last one lasted for a long time. And so they met because, I guess, he was a big bridge player, and she was also really into bridge. So, like, they were just, like, playing bridge with, like, other people for, like, a year before they even spoke and stuff. And then eventually they started talking and started dating. You know what happens from there. But she said, this is a quote from her, she sensed she could give Keaton what he needed, not just a wife, but a, quote, combination valet, cook, housekeeper, bill payer, and constant reminder. So I don't know if you want him coming for you, Laura. But a constant reminder of what? Just, to, to, I think to someone stuff. to remind. She's a secretary. Okay. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Oh. They were married for decades and apparently were like very happy. She was a dancer and so they did like acts together and she's like very credited with revitalizing his career after this movie. Um, no, he yeah. definitely does seem a little bit like a... Yeah. Yeah. She I'm said not... they never had kids because she raised him. So they didn't. She didn't. Need Ew. No, I'm yeah. grossed out. So <laughs> not surprised. <laughs> You just ruined it. Yeah. yeah. If you see oh, that wow. sad she, face ghost coming Now I'm going to go you. watch some Harry Lloyd and yeah. think about him. She she was with you until that. But yeah. Okay. So clock. that's it for this episode of Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at <laughs> facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. You can also email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.